This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, okay. Uh, thank you, Bob. So, so today I'd like to talk about this title, using this title. So at first, I'd like to uh, uh, explain about what is an LED. So basically, uh, this is the LED structures. And basically, uh, LED is uh, uh, basically composed of three layers. And you know, at first, there's N-type layer. And uh, center uh, layer is uh, uh, emitting layer. And uh, the layer is called P-type layer. So this structure is called a double hetero structure. Because hetero, you know, this is a you know n-type layer and it's a different material. Usually, emitting layer is indium gallium nitride. So there are two uh, heterosia. It's called double heterosia. This idea was invented by uh, Professor Hub Kromer, you know, and he he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2000. Because now all of LED laser diodes have to use double heterosia to to make a high efficient LED also laser diode. So, you know, so thank you for uh, uh, grow. <laughs> and uh, so, 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 sorry. Uh, so in the case of blue LED, missing layer was this emitting layer and the P-type layer. So, so that's the reason we couldn't uh, make uh, uh, blue uh, LED design for a long time. So, so by invention of blue LED, the biggest market is the white LEDs. And uh, how to make white LED? This one, just the blue LED, you know, and there's a yellow phosphor. So this blue light excites blue, uh, yellow phosphor, and we can get yellow. And the blue uh, color direct comes from blue LED chip, and the mixing of yellow and blue, we can make white. But this is uh, now a big problem, because uh, blue light direct comes from blue LED, so it means the uh, spectrum edges of blue is very narrow. So in order to make a, a good white balance, you know, peak intensity of blue, blue emission should be very strong. So this is high intensity blue, blue emission causes a, a disrupt circadian cycle. So we cannot sleep under strong blue emission. You know, so long-term irradiation, especially for children, you know, it's a big problem. So, you know, so next, uh, you know, so but recently, you know, Sora developed a new white LED, which uses violet LEDs. Please use violet excited white LEDs, you know. <clears throat> so anyway, so, you, so, so this is a white LED bulb lamp. So, you know, using a white LED, we can make white LED bulb lamp. And this shows the uh, efficiency of red, blue, green LEDs as a function of developed tiers. So basically, in the 60s, uh, red LED was invented, and the efficiency increased uh, like this. And since the 60s, many scientists tried to develop blue and green LEDs in order to make any kind of colors. But nobody could uh, develop. But uh, in our group, in 93, we could develop high-efficient uh, blue LEDs. Also, in 95, we could develop high-efficient green LEDs. So, so then we can make any kind of colors, especially white LEDs. So, so this shows a white LED. So efficiency of white LED now around, uh, you know, uh, 
as a commercial base around uh, 100 or 150 lumen power. So it means uh, these are fluorescent lamps. So the efficiency of white is much higher than the uh, fluorescent lamp or incandescent bulb lamp. So it's also a big difference is the lifetime of white is, is almost 50 years. The, this conventional uh, lamp is lifetime is you know very short. No. So impact. Uh, so. So basically, in 1993, we developed our first high-efficient variables. The first biggest market is a cell phone. At that time, in Nokia, ATT, those cell phone companies tried to develop cell phone. But the biggest problem is no light source, which can be operated by a small battery, three volt. So LED is a perfect matching for this, uh, for, for this application. So and then all of now mobile uh, device use uh, LED backlight. And the next is uh, TB uh, backlight, and also this is uh, agriculture, you know. <laughs> and now automobile headlamp use uh, LED, also laser dial, laser lighting. Also now uh, general uh, lighting it would be the huge market for LED. Uh, LED. And uh, so now white LED use for the all, you know, all over the world to save uh, energies. So this is uh, just, you know, in the, so LED is penetrated is, uh, slowly, but, uh, but uh, in the current pace, you know, you know, by 2030, so each country can save a lot of, eliminate a lot of nuclear power plant. In Japan, by 2020, seven, uh, seven nuclear plants eliminated by saving energy using LED lamp. And uh, Germany is only three, but the US, China, uh, population is huge, they use a lot of uh, uh, lamp, you know, lighting, so they <laughs> can eliminate a lot of nuclear plant. Uh, this is India, nine. So you can see, you know, this is huge. All over the world, how much nuclear plant is eliminated. It's a huge energy reduction. So next I talk about how, how I could invent a blue LEDs. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so basically, in the 80s, in the 80s, uh, research of the blue LED is very popular among all over the world. And uh, at that time, there are two kinds of material available, uh, zinc selenide or gallium nitrate. And uh, so you can see this is a uh, you know, deep, dark line. This is a crystal defect. So gallium nitrate, you, know, you can see a huge number of crystal defects. On the other hand, zinc selenide, nothing, perfect crystal. So in the 80s, all, basically all of the scientists selected zinc selenide because the crystal was very good. This is, you can see, huge number of crystals. So nobody expected we could make a blue LED using a gallium nitride. So anyway, you know, oh, anyway, so I told the oh, missing, uh, I told the missing layer was uh, at that time P-type gallium nitride and indium gallium nitride. So, you know, so I, in my case, I started the blue LED research '89, and uh, so so basically in you know '89. So for maybe what's that? So from '82 '89, I went to University of Florida as a visiting researcher for one year, and uh, so at that time, you know, uh, I had to work together with a PhD student, and all of PhD students asked me, "Do you have PhD degree?" I so I don't have PhD. I don't. I didn't have PhD degree, so I said no. And the next day, they asked me, have you published any scientific paper? I said, no, I have never published any scientific paper. At that time, my age was 35 years old. So in Japan, you know, 35 years is, is means uh, uh, retirement age as a scientist. 
<laughs> so, uh, so I became so mad. So, so one year later, I came back to Japan in order to start a Blue LED research. So my dream became the, uh, uh, getting a PhD degree. By publishing at least uh, five scientific papers, we could get a PhD degree in Japan at the time. It's called a paper degree. So my dream became publishing at least five scientific papers, you know? <laughs> so uh, I never expected I could invent Blue LEDs. So anyway, in 89, I started Blue LED research. And uh, so initially, the biggest problem is uh, the MOCBD. So I commercial the uh, MOCBD, uh, you know, it cost two million dollars. So MOCBD used for the crystal growth of gallium nitride. And uh, so initially I worked uh, for commercial-based MOCBD, but uh, no crystal growth, or even if they are crystal growth, color was black. So I modified the reactor. So uh, almost one and a half year I spent modified the reactor. And uh, finally I, I, you know, constructed this reactor. I named the two-flow MOCBD. So I got to this new MOCB October 90. And uh, since uh, October 90, this reactor was so good, so any kind of crystal growth, best crystal in the world, any device growth, uh, most high-efficient blue LED, everything is. Uh, so, so this is the biggest breakthrough in my life, because after this invention, always our group showed the best results in the world. And the first is a P-type layer. So Using this MOCBD, you know, you know, you know we grow. So initially, P-type gamma, we have to dope magnesium. So since 70 people tried to dope magnesium, Bob explained. So, uh, you know, Bell Laboratory, everybody tried to P-type gamma using uh, uh, magnesium doping. But the problem is that after doping magnesium, uh, resistance became semi-insulating. So nobody understands. But in our group, just uh, we use the thermal reading, and we could uh, observe the reduction of resistivity dramatically, and we got P-type gallium nitride. And I clarified also mechanism. So hydrogen passivated the magnesium acceptors, and by using thermal reading, we could remove hydrogen, and the magnesium acceptor is activated. This is called hydrogen passivation. So in that basically, we solved all the problem P-type gallium nitride. So just using a summer reading. And the next is the emitting layer. So this is also another biggest problem. Nobody could grow uh, this uh, emitting layer of indigo gallium nitride. You know, since the 70s, the people tried to grow indigo nitride, but nobody succeeded. But using uh, two-flame CBD, uh, basically easily you could obtain high-quality indigo gallium nitride emitting layer, which shows strong uh, violet or also blue emission. You know, so so now we can you know indium gallium. So now we can stack the emitting layer of indium gallium nitride and the p-type gallium nitride, and we can make a double heterostructure, which invented by Professor Hub Cromer. You know, and now we, so in '92 we made the first double heterostructure, and for one year we prepared for the mass production of blue LEDs and. In 1993, we did a big breakthrough of the high-efficient blue LEDs. Paper appeared in 1994. And uh, Nobel, fa no, Nobel Foundation copied our first high-efficient blue LED in 1993. So you can see the, the heart of the LED, you know? You can see P-layer, active layer, n layer. So this is a double heterostructure, which invented by Professor Havcom. So this is a heart, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, he's still got, okay, so, 
So next I talk about the second generation LED, gun-on-gun -gun LEDs. Basically, this was uh, invented at UCSB, I know. At UCSB, you know, uh, I worked together with Professor Steve Denbers and Jim Speck. So since 2000, we worked for this one, gun-on-gun -gun technology. And uh, in 2008, uh, we started a company of solar, and solar now is making a product of gun-on-gun -gun LED. And the first generation is a, is a you know, LED grown on sapphire, silicon carbon, silicon. So huge number of crystal defects. I told you, gallium nitride. So currently all of blue LED include a huge number of crystal defects because the LED grown basically sapphire or silicon carbon. But uh, in the case of second generation LED, gun-on-gun, in this case, substrate gallium nitride, homoepitaxial growth. Basically, no crystal defect. No crystal defect should be better, no? So, so this is, uh, you know, Sora's uh, paper, uh, this paper with uh, this year. So this is an amazing result because uh, usually LED shape is a rectangular shape, but Sora uses triangular shape. This is a very strange LED because using triangular shape, uh, we can increase the light extraction efficiency. So this paper also shows a wall plug efficiency of uh, uh, Sora's gun-gun LEDs. So wall plug efficiency is, uh, peak is 84%, but basically around 80%. But uh, you know, currently commercially available blue LEDs, uh, this is, a, uh, you know, Sora is a violet, violet LED, not blue, violet. And uh, currently commercially available blue LEDs, the wall plug efficiency is around 50 or 60%. So you can see, almost uh, 10, at least 20% higher. So using a gun gun, also color is violet, not blue. And the difference is that, so standard currently, you know, all of the blue LEDs uh, like this, so LED grown sapphire, huge number of crystal defects. But the solar gun gun is uh, basically no crystal defect. And the shape of the LED is a triangular shape, and uh, conventional blue LED is a rectangular shape. And uh, you can see chip size is very small uh, because uh, we can operate this at high current density. So, so these uh, conventional blue LEDs, uh, it's a grown sapphire due to the huge number of crystal defects. You know, operating current density is very small, uh, less than 100 amperes per centimeter. But in the case of gun-on-gun -gun LED, operating current density is almost five or 10 times higher than the conventional blue LEDs. And, uh, and uh, so solar case using gun-on-gun, -gun, also LED is uh, violet LEDs. So important is that violet LED excites the red, green, blue phosphors. So blue, green, red color come from phosphor. So violet excites these uh, phosphors. So that's a big difference. It's called uh, violet. VP3, violet and 3 phosphor. And so you can see this is a, a spectrum of the, so this is daylight, this is a daylight sunlight. So sunlight is a full spectrum. For, so human beings, the best lighting is sunlight. You can understand, no? So we have to copy the sunlight. So currently available white LED use blue LED to make white. So this one, so so in that case, blue excites the yellow phosphor. So no violet color. Also, this blue-green region is missing. And also, red color is missing. 
So this color is not good. So color and by white, all of white edges is like this. So color is very, very poor. Color quite poor. But you can see solar's LED, LED uh, white lamp. Solar is a violet LED to excite blue, green, red. So full color spectrum. So in the view of the color quality, this is based almost the same as the data, sunlight. Also another good thing is uh, solar's uh, white LEDs, uh, you know, solar uses violet LEDs. So, so white, white paper, white shirts, all kinds of white color materials include a brightening agent to make beautiful color, white color. So this brightening agent only can be excited by UV or violet emission, not blue. So, you know, so if we use current white LEDs made by blue, all the white shirts, white paper become yellowish color because the bright agents cannot be excited. You know, and also cosmetic. So ladies cosmetic. So, you know, under the current white agents, all the white cosmetic become yellowish color. But using a solar lamp, it's, you know, Violet, you know, solar use violet LEDs. So this violet excites the bright, brightening agent, so white becomes white, you know. So, so you have to be very careful. This is very important, you know. And also important thing that this is a solar's, uh, uh, you know, white LED spectrum. So violet excites blue, green, uh, red. So blue intensity is very small, you know. This is the incandescent balloon. So less than the intensity of the incandescent balloon. Blue is very blue intensity is very small. This is very important. It doesn't cause the circadian problem. Circadian cycle problem causes the blue emission, not the violet. Only blue. Blue causes the sleeping problem. No. So this is a currently you know, commercially available white LEDs. Currently commercial white LEDs spectrum is like this. So blue direct come from blue LED. And uh, this yellow comes from phosphor. So phosphor means uh, very broad space. Peak intensity is small, but uh, in uh, integral area is very large. So to, to make a white good, good white color balance, this peak intensity is very strong. So this peak in high intensity of blue causes uh, you know, sleeping problem. This reduces uh, melatonin and uh, basically disrupts the circadian cycle. So, you know, for small children, this is a big problem. For older people, no problem, but for small children, they enjoy TV game using iPhone, iPad, also they watch TV, you know, also now home writing. So all of those writing sources use this strong blue, you know. And now, you know, UCS, so this is our UCS member, Solicit Lighting Energy Electronics Medical Center. We are so next, developing the next generation Solicit Lighting using Gang Gang. Yeah, that's all. Thank you. Oh, yeah, Wait, also, I forgot to answer. And, uh, sorry. So this is, uh, uh, you know, Professor John Bauer started the NPO company, uh, Unite to Write. And this uh, lamp is used for the, at the third country. Third country, uh, some country has no electricity. But now they can use uh, this lamp. This is uh, a solar cell 
and uh, daytime solar cell charge the battery, and nighttime charge battery operate this white LEDs. You know, so this is uh, very cheap. Uh, because uh, conventional, those countries, they use kerosene lamp, oil lamp, but oil lamp is very expensive. They have to spend uh, $60 per year to buy oil, but this one is only $3 per year, $3. But the problem is uh, battery lifetime only three years. That's the reason, $3. Lifetime of LED is 50 years, and the solar cell is the battery is 20 or 30 years. If battery lifetime becomes 10 years, this cost is $0.3 per year, almost free. You know, so <laughs> that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I started this session by saying something about uh, the kinds of material science that we're hearing described as being molecular engineering, engineering at the molecular scale. But in fact, I think reality is that uh, the material scientists and semiconductor crystal growers in particular are practicing uh, modern-day alchemy. Uh, they show us these fantastic uh, diagrams of uh, the materials that they're producing. And uh, believe me, it's not like driving a car. <laughs> So at this point, I'd like to introduce Professor Denbars, whose uh, research is also focused on taking uh, complex materials and f fabricating them in a way that it, uh, allows them to emit light in various useful uh, formats. So, Professor Denbars. Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, I'd like to thank Bob personally because uh, he may not know this, but the first MOCVD or the first equipment that I operated here, uh, almost my job here was created by uh, some funding he had given to uh, Larry Coldren and John Bowers. Uh, and that's actually what made me leave Hewlett Packard to come here. So indirectly, he's responsible for Suji coming here <laughs> because I came here and we got the effort going. And that effort led to a field which was not a name at the time of called solid state lighting. And so I'm here today to tell you what we're doing in our center here, in the, what we're doing for the next generation. Suji told you LED 2.0. I'm here to tell you what lighting 3.0 looks like. That is, what is the next generation of LED and laser lighting research? And so the way we see the future, and it's all based on this compound semiconductor crystal, which again uh, goes back to Herb Cromer, the foundation of Santa Barbara's excellent in electronic materials goes to the fact that he said, uh, and he told me this, when he came here, he told the administration, we don't want to compete with silicon because that's being done up by Stanford and Berkeley. We need to do something called compound semiconductors. So in the 70s, that was just beginning to be a field. You always want to do something that's at the beginning. You don't want to do something that everybody's already proven because then the companies will do it. And so this semiconductor, which is gallium plus nitrogen, is very abundant, actually, but you can't find it in nature. We have to make it molecularly in these complex reactors. And so what Suji you know, brought us is he completed the color spectrum, which was blue, and that gives us this field here, which I call LED illumination, and it also gives you the full color that you see in your cell phone screen, and some of these screens are now OLED, which is what Alan does. So this LED is, was kind of a given. What the new applications we're working on, and what I'm here to tell you a little bit more about today, is we've now perfected this LED even more, but what we see as the next generation of, of lighting 3.0 is laser lighting. 
And believe it or not, already today, BMW sells a car with, instead of LED headlights, it has a laser headlight in it. And I'll tell you why on earth you would you want to use this laser, which I'm in my hand and combine it with phosphorus to make a headlight. But there's some very compelling reasons. In addition, instead of LED TV, which you can go to Costco and buy, hopefully in three years you can go buy a laser TV. And that will be actually 100 inch. And it will be only $1,000 because it will come out of a little box that you put in front of your wall instead of a big piece of glass. Finally, the third part of my talk, I'll talk about what we see as making this light intelligent. That is, adding communication to it. So we know that communication through the fiber is how you get information to the home. But actually, we want to distribute information around the home by using uh, what's called Li-Fi. Or it's like white. Wi-Fi, but it, instead it uses light bulbs to transmit the data. And we see this as every light bulb has this ability, and it can communicate with your cell phone and another one of these devices which fits this Internet of Things. So these are the kind of the future applications we see. So that's the applications. The actual research that goes behind that that we're working on is kind of broken into these uh, three areas. Efficiency group, that is getting the efficiency even better for LED lighting. Uh, Suji showed you the power savings for existing LED light bulbs were about 120 lumen per watt. We want to do three times better than that. So then you could triple the number of nuclear power plant savings that he, he showed you. Uh, in fact, maybe someday you don't even need to run electricity to your light bulb. You could use wireless transfer, power transfer, or you could even use potentially even the heat in a room to generate the light. And that will only be possible if we eliminate something called efficiency droop. And so some very novel alchemy again, that is, we're using new crystal structures to get that. We're doing the GAN on GAN that Suji mentioned that was started here at UCSB. And, and there's now three companies that have commercialized that. And that will give us lower droop and better efficiency. The next thing is then the laser lighting, which uh, I think uh, Rod Alfred has mentioned. Lasers are about as big of a grain of salt. That's going to be your light bulb of the future. Instead of these big light bulbs, you'll have something as big as a grain of sand. And I'll show you that, and we can almost do that today. And then finally, we're going to have our light bulbs be intelligent. That is, they'll be, even in this room, each light bulb will have its own IP address. And just like uh, you can send wireless signals to your phone, each uh, light bulb will be able to communicate at different frequencies with your phone. So everybody here could be hooked up to a single light bulb, and they wouldn't even, you know, it'd be secure communication. So I'll explain how that's going to work. So this is our vision on a kind of a what I call a material science or device scheme. This was the, uh, the LED that Suji got the Nobel Prize for. So in the current light bulb today, you need anywhere from 12 to 28 of these devices. And they're pretty big. They're about a millimeter. So that's significantly bigger than a grain of sand uh, to make your light bulb. The this lighting 2.0 they talked about uses about a one millimeter chip of GAN on GAN to replace these 28 millimeters. And so that's great. And so you can make nice little point sources. What we see in the future is we can even reduce that even one-tenth smaller and make a laser light source, which then pumps a phosphorus, a phosphor crystal, to make a light bulb. And so then we only need 0.1 of these. So you can see you're getting about 200 times more light bulbs out per wafer than you normally would. And that will help drive the cost down, believe it or not. And what the laser lighting and the GAN on GAN solves is two of the biggest problems with white LED light bulbs when you go to the store is you read all these great press releases about we have 200 lumens per watt. This is actually on your light bulb. They'll, they'll, it's called the lighting facts. They'll put, publish on the side what the lumen per watt is. Just for reference, incandescent bulb lamp is 15 lumen per watt. But what is on the bulb is 70 to 90, even though the company said it's going to be 200. 
And the reason is, is because the light bulb gets, still gets hot, the LED light bulb, so that causes the droop. But also, they run it out here at 30, and that causes the droop. So both of these things add up together. And so the LED is not quite as efficient as where we'd like it to be. So we're working on these two problems. Uh, this is another view of, of droop, just showing you how the LED, instead of getting brighter, you get it, turn it up, it starts actually getting efficiency drops, it gets dimmer. And without going into all the physics, because I only have about seven more minutes, is we found a new way to get around some of these droop problems. And so we have uh, numerous PhD students working on new crystal planes, which have better efficiency droop, and which already show the promise of being able to run five times better, or five times more current than existing structures. So these are some uh, technologies we've invented here. Uh, and this shows you some of the student data. So these, this red line is the commercial or even the best seaplane we can, we can make here, and this is actual efficiency. Uh, by the way, incandescent bulb lamps down here at 5%, but this shows you the semipolar, or the new crystal planes, able to run about five times uh, more current. So that would reduce the chip count by about a factor of five. Okay, so that's the LED story. So what's the laser story? Uh, as I mentioned, the laser light source is 1 50th the area of that GAN LED. And it has some very interesting properties. One is it's a perfect point source. So this is a, a BMW headlight taken apart. And what they're doing is they're, they're hitting a phosphor disk right here in the middle, and they have an elliptical mirror here. They're hitting it with lasers, which come in from these side waveguides. And this is what the, uh, the car headlight spotlight looks in the distance. If you do a normal car headlight, it would be very fuzzy, and you wouldn't get this nice elliptical spot. And furthermore, they're actually putting MEMS in, here, in the mirror here, and they're actually able to break off the headlight, and if somebody walks to the right, they actually can point a portion of the headlight off and show you that there's a person coming uh, that's trying to cross the Autobahn, uh, which, is, is, which is very interesting. Uh, so why, why this laser-based lighting? Why is it uh, so attractive? One reason is this is that efficiency I showed you earlier that's drooping. The laser has the opposite of a uh, property of the LED in that once you get it to turn on and laze, which is about here, the efficiency actually gets better as you drive the current into it. Uh, actually, we even have some better data than this, but didn't want to show yet. This, is, this data gave us about 83 lumens per watt, which is not quite as good as an LED yet, uh, but we think we'll get there because this is, you know, we've only been working on this a couple years. And in, inherently, in other material systems, like the systems that Larry and John work in, lasers are actually more like 70% efficient. So if we can get this thing up to 70%, we'll, we'll double that number. And this laser light bulb is actually on the table over here. So Machiko and Yukina will turn it on later. You can turn it on now, uh, just so they can see a laser light bulb. So stop by the booth afterwards, and you'll see some of these cute little demos. Uh, so how does laser lighting work? Why is it a little bit different than the LED lighting? It's only different in the sense that we are typically using single crystal or single crystal-like phosphor crystals that emit uh, multiple wavelengths. So we're trying to convert this blue light into uh, red, green, and blue. And this actually shows you a, a student, should have been my hand, but a student holding up a phosphor crystal here, and we're scanning the, spread out the laser beam, and that's giving you the white light. And so that makes it more eye safe that you could actually believe you could use it for a car headlight. Uh, so this is some data from Michael Cantori. His credit should have been here. And this was the first demonstration of a laser diode plus a, what's called a single crystal phosphor. Most light LED light bulbs don't use single crystal phosphors. We use a single crystal phosphor because it can take the high intensity of the laser source. And this showed you from a single chip, we're able to get 1,000 lumens. This is what a 75-watt light bulb puts out. 
And this chip, by the way, like I said, is as big as a grain of sand. So very small, but very efficient, and uh, basically already six times better than incandescent. So, uh, so we think the future is already starting to get here. Uh, LG has a, a laser-based projector on the market. Uh, it's about $3,000. Like I said, it will come down. But this one's the, I think the more interesting one is that BMW came out with this car and it went for sale just uh, six months ago in Germany. And this is what I call the, vis they call the visibility range. So sorry you can't, it's a little blurry, you can't, can't see it. But this basically says, this is a, your normal car headlights going about 150 meters. The laser headlights going uh, 600 to 700 meters. So here's a better picture of it. So why would you want to do that? Well, if you're in Germany and you're on the Autobahn, you're driving about 240 kilometers per hour. And they don't like to slow down in Germany at night. Herb can attest to that. So this is your normal headlight. You're not going to see anybody out here. LED high beam's pretty good. You're getting a little bit better. But this is the laser, uh, laser headlight. Each one of these is 100 meters. You're seeing 700 meter range. Uh, and believe it or not, to oncoming traffic, it doesn't look brighter to you. There's some complex optics behind it. It's basically the way the light diverges from the point source. So uh, they have approval in, in Europe. I think it'll take them two or three years to get approval in the US before you see these. So that's just showing you, could, you could use it for headlights. Panasonic's actually already starting to use it as a, a downlight, which they can then turn it from a white light to a projector. This is called the space player. Uh, because the, the laser light is so fine, you can actually use a MEMS and actually make a projector out of the light bulb. Uh, the last subject, I got three minutes, he says, is uh, what I call the LED LiFi. So LiFi is a pretty new term. It, I want to give credit to Professor Harold Haas from uh, University of uh, Edinburgh. He coined this term to describe, instead of wireless fidelity, this is light fidelity communications. And what we're starting to see, and you can actually start to buy some products at, at Home Depot, although they're really low speeds right now, is you know when you come into your house, sometimes your cell phone signal, especially if it's a multi-story apartment, you typically lose your cell phone signal. And so what this would do is directly, seamlessly integrate, directly going from the Wi-Fi tower, or the, the wireless tower, to the light bulbs. And the light bulb would then take over communicating with your cell phone for the data. Uh, in addition, this can't easily be detected outside your home. So there's, there's some uh, acceptance, and like I said, there's some, several products starting to appear. Um, one problem we see is that currently the, the, bit, the uh, data transmission rate's too slow. So what we're starting to look on is putting lasers in the light bulb instead of uh, LEDs. It turns out that, believe it or not, lasers are very fast. Uh, so this is uh, just showing you some applications. Another area is airplane, believe it or not. You won't have to turn off your cell phone anymore when they take off because if you're doing light communication, that doesn't interfere with the radar. Uh, also, hospital rooms, believe it or not, they don't have enough data available from their wireless to communicate with all the sensors in the room. Uh, and then finally, believe it or not, undersea communication. The, the only way you can communicate with that submarine at the bottom of the, the sea is either through a wired connection or very slow ultrasonic connections. But if you use laser, it can be gigabit. And finally, some data from our, our group here, some data from Chang Ming Li, showing you we already have uh, three gigahertz uh, data transmission using uh, laser lighting, and this one uh, has phosphor with it. So I think I'll conclude, because he says time's up. Uh, conclude with this slide. So we think laser diodes are a future of lighting. Thank you.
Open for questions. Any questions? That's one on the table back there on the left. Yeah. So the, the limitation with the LED is it's the spontaneous recombination rate. So I think Professor Amnon Yariv said he calls that noise. <laughs> it's when the, the electron decides to fall down into a whole state by itself. And so laser, it's stimulated, so we can, we can make that much faster. So the lifetime of a laser uh, stimulated emission can be picoseconds. Uh, so it can be 100, if not 1,000 times faster than an LED. So an LED will always have this problem of what I call spontaneous recombination. Yeah, Dr. Yarv. Yes, you're, you're correct. So the, he brought up another point. The, the reason why laser lighting is attractive for these point source applications is the light's spontaneous, not only being noisy, it's going in all directions. The laser, as you showed, it's going one direction. So if you want a headlight, you want it all going one direction. So that, that gives us that additional efficiency benefit. And one question in the back. Go ahead. Could you get a microphone? I can't hear you. Please, or somebody who's running shower. towards you. Shower. Do you see direct, uh, direct illumination rather than indirect illumination as taking over at some point? Now, it's not using a phosphor, but using uh, multicolor LEDs or spectrum LEDs to give a higher efficiency. I don't think his question is, uh, do I think the red, green, blue LEDs would replace uh, an LED plus a phosphor? I don't think so, because if you use three red LEDs, you get these big gaps that Sudhi was talking about. And we're finding now, now that those gaps aren't good for you. They're not, it's not natural. And this is why compact fluorescent failed so miserably. It has the worst gaps of everything. So we want to replicate sunlight. And the way to do that is phosphor is very broad. So you can get phosphor is much more easy to match what sunlight looks like than the, than the direct three LED um, red, green, blue emission. OK, let's thank the speaker. Thank you. Up to now in this session, we've heard about molecular engineering applied to creating materials that will emit light uh, where we want it to be emitted. And we've heard some references to the application to lasers. But it's not enough for a material to just emit light. You have to embed that light emitting material in a structure which controls <clears throat> the feedback uh, of light from the uh, material back into the material to create the stimulated emission that in fact characterizes uh, laser operation. And so uh, in this last uh, uh, presentation of the session, Professor Cauldron is going to tell us about the work of his group in tailoring and molecular engineering structures around the laser gain medium in order to achieve laser uh, performance uh, to meet our uh, performance requirements. So let me turn it over to Larry. Thank you, Bob. Nice picture. Huh? Uh, I think you might believe this by now. So I, 
not sure I have much to add, but uh, the title or the purpose of my talk is to fill in the gaps a little bit between where Herb started and I guess John sort of jumped to the end and we just heard more of what's in the future. Uh, where should I point this? Over here. So, again, we're starting with Herb Cromer. Herb, Herb's been uh, subject of a lot of uh, beginnings of talks. I'm going to have a personal perspective here of my own experiences coming in at uh, 1984 when Morabian was here, a lot of hires. Some people called it the Bell Labs invasion when Bell Labs was being broken up. Uh, of course, many others came. The materials department started at about that same time. And many collaborative national centers followed, which really helped, I don't know, formulate and coagulate those people that came, of course, we have today. So I'm going to be looking from, my, as I said, my personal perspective, of course, mentioning the materials and processing technologies that came out of some of these centers, but mentioning also things that I've been involved in over the years, vertical cavity lasers, tunable lasers, and of course, uh, the photonic integrated circuits that really are culminating in the AIM proposal that John talked about. This is very dangerous. I have a slide with names on it, but only about half the names that I've collaborated with because I'm focusing on semiconductor lasers and those people that directly uh, influenced my work and others here at Santa Barbara on semiconductor lasers. Material technology that came along, materials growth, MBE, LPE, MBE, uh, MOCBD, and then, of course, gallium nitride, MOCBD. Lots of these national centers. Quest, I think we all remember this. NSF Center, Quantum Confined Electronics Structures, a science and technology center. I have OTC, which is the center that was just referred to a little while ago by Steve, a DARPA center. Uh, MRL, which MRSIC now, NNIN, which is a clean room, CNSI, a California Institute, SSLEEC today, uh, and, and IEE, of course, and AIM coming on board. Uh, we've heard about blue lasers, LEDs, silicon photonics. I'm painting in the top three here, pixels, tunables, and PIX, sort of, you might say, the middle painting here. Of course, I have my vertical axis where I say, of course, we've started out good, became excellent, outstanding, and leading. So uh, all of this coming together. Complicated slide, of course. Wouldn't have happened without outstanding deans along the way. Uh, and uh, materials department Morabian was influenced a lot of us at the very beginning. Venki, Matt Terrell, and of course Rod at the current time. 
I won't spend as much time on the other slides. Semiconductor lasers, there was an invention, then came the double header structure. In my opinion, there really weren't semiconductor lasers before the double header structure. I think I got this slide from John some time ago. 400 times improvement in 1970. I think Amnon would agree that's when lasers really took off, really became practical with the impact of liquid phase epitaxy being able to grow these devices. Uh, Santa Barbara, here's Herb Cromer again with the MBE system in the late 70s, the first machine ordered at any university, the second machine delivered. I guess Les Eastman beat you out there, I'm told. This is history I don't really know. Wasn't too long before we ordered uh, a couple of new machines. This was after our second Engineering 2 was built and Moravian had arrived and actually I had arrived as well at that point. Materials department was formed. Here's the original cast of characters in electronic materials. Of course, it wasn't long before uh, others arrived and Art Gossert then took over the MBE lab and kept it functioning until uh, this day, really. Uh, well, the result was this, that we've National Research Council, a two-point curve here on, on the materials department, of course, did very well. And of course, some other departments in the college have done very well uh, equally until the last uh, ranking by the National Research Council. So with excellent MBE and a few inventions, we started a program on vertical cavity surface emitting lasers. Uh, Suji mentioned 1989. I have to admit, if I go back to that other plot, Vixels and tunable lasers, 1988, we had a pile of inventions. And the rest of my talk is about really using playing out those inventions from 1988. Uh, it took us a while, but in 1991, a few months after both Bell Labs and us here made Vixels that had the gain at the standing wave peaks and not anywhere else, Vixels started to work and work well. These are the lowest threshold, highest power in the world all in one little electronics letters paper. And we kept doing that for several years. There's 115 milliwatts CW out of a Vixel. A couple years later, here's temperature stability over 50, 60 degrees in that same year. So there was a period of about four years where we held all of the world's records in Vixels. So what, what are Vixels? Well, they're good for computer mice. They're good in some kinds of printers. More recently, they're used in all kinds of things, even chip scale atomic clocks, gesture recognition, and all kinds of manufacturing control. They've become also very important in active cables. These are cables with the electronics in the plugs, basically, so that you think you might have just a regular cable. 
uh, very important in data centers that we all use with our Google accounts and Facebooks and so forth. Fiber array transceivers. Uh, Wagi Isaac will tell you maybe a little bit more about those because he was in charge of this group that I'm quoting here. Uh, these are important in data centers. Fiber ribbon cables with, that are arrayed into maybe 48 fibers, even 72 these days. Also important in supercomputers. Uh, recently, uh, we have one supercomputer with a couple of million pixels in one computer. Uh, where, what are we doing today? We're using pixels to try to do on-ship or on board, I should say, interconnects. And of course, this is uh, being done by other techniques as well. But our work went on, and uh, we fast forward a decade. We got back into the lead with uh, very high efficiency VIXELs, uh, 286, give and take a few femtojoules per bit from a VIXEL that looks like this in the upper left. Uh, differential efficiencies that stayed at 70% down to submicron dimensions. This was by getting the losses out. Again, gain at the, only at the standing wave peaks, putting lenses in the cavities, careful band gap engineering and modulation doping for very low resistance as well as very low loss at the same time. And we held that record for about four or five years. And it wasn't until this paper came along from Amai at Fujitsu, who referenced our work and his work, here referenced as this work, in 2011. So we did well in Vixel's recent work, polarization modulation, the first work really to get multi-gigahertz polarization modulation with electrical drive. Uh, this shows four. We've done upwards of 10. And notice the thresholds aren't so bad, 120 microamps and still multi-milliwatt outputs. So back to this. I've talked about pixels. I want to talk about tunables and picks. And I underline OTC. It turns out at this same period of time, I said, started here in 1991. Guess what else happened in 1991? That's when this Optoelectronics Technology Center that Steve referenced happened from DARPA, a multi-campus center consortia. Really to emphasize not just collaboration between faculty, but collaboration with industry, listening to what industry had to say, interacting with industry, making sure our students knew what was going on in industry. And voila, what happened that same year that that started, that's not the uh, MOCVD we bought, uh, but Steve Denbar has arrived. We started the indium phosphide work. We were able to then look at some fancy edge emitters on indium phosphide. And of course, Steve went on to uh, make some gallium nitride with another machine that he bought, I think, around 1996. Uh, 
The other invention in 1988, which we just got around to realizing in 1990, was a widely tunable laser, which was something I'd been working on for a few years, but now we could make good ones at Santa Barbara. And this is the sample grading distributed Bragg reflector laser, a particularly simple laser, relatively speaking, compared to other widely tunable lasers, straight waveguide. Just had a couple of active regions uh, and a periodically blanked grating on each end. The laser's just here at this end. Uh, and this allowed us to put out this only one wavelength at a time, by the way, which was important. But this is superposition of wavelengths over 40 or 50 nanometers. And this is what an SEM picture looks like of the same thing. But notice that we can also make uh, elements outside of the cavity without doing anything else. The same fabrication technology, just, just make the mask pattern a little bit longer. You can put active regions and uh, even modulators uh, more gratings if you want to, and so forth. Uh, this became the uh, product of a startup company here and a central line of products at JDS Uniphase once they acquired the company. Now, uh, a similar line of products at Lumentum recently spun out from JDSU. And it has played a major role in WDM fiber communications because you have now one part that will do any wavelength in the WDM spectrum. Again, reiterating the integration technology for much more complex picks, just showing one of the JDSU products. And these are being used in both metro and long haul communications. So just quickly, that's, that's a little laser here, which look pretty complicated, but of course we've used them in a wide variety of photonic ICs over the year, years. John mentioned this uh, device in his talk that uh, in a joint project sweeper a few years ago, uh, where this laser is, whoops, is now split, and the... Uh, two-dimensional array beam sweeping can be obtained with just controlling the wavelength. That's the one and a phased array. In this case, 32 waveguides. Uh, this shows an SEM. We were able to make these successfully. And here it's flip chipped onto a one-inch carrier. All the contacts worked. The beams, 1.2 degrees by 0.3 degrees in the far field picture of the far field scan. So photonic integration works. Uh, of course, these it's preferable to have a flat solid state beam sweeper rather than a spinning laser inside a, uh, a can on top of the roof for lots of applications. If you catch the light coming back, you now have three D imaging, and uh, I'll let this slide speak for itself. Uh, 
We've recently done some other experiments putting a tunable laser as a local oscillator on a chip. So here we have a coherent receiver on a chip or the local oscillator, a hybrid, a 90-degree hybrid, so that that mixes the local oscillator with the incoming signal. Four photodetectors so that we can get both the I and Q components, the in-phase and quadrature components of the electric field for uh, full reconstruction of the electric field in a heterodyne receiver. Everything works well. We get lots of power. This is just from the laser. There's an SOA that roughly gives us 6 dBs. So we have about 100 milliwatts going into the hybrid. 90-degree hybrid works well. UTC photodetectors, lots of bandwidth and saturation power. What we've really been doing more recently, rather than running that into a DSP for signal processing, as most receivers do, is going back almost to the 80s and using an optical phase lock loop where we put a very high-speed feedback loop around the chip, uh, and that's been work in collaboration with Mark Rodwell, who does the electronics. And what we are actually doing here is optical frequency synthesis, because what we're putting in is a comb. Uh, I should be using a real laser here, I guess. A comb, and uh, we're then tuning between the comb lines with the RF signal. And the result of that is shown here, 40 gigahertz comb. We start in the central line, we tune to the next comb line, we grab it, we keep tuning, and this is showing going the opposite direction. So we have 160 gigahertz in this example. And the important part is that we clone the line of the comb, lines coming in. So we might start with a lousy laser that has a, a large line width, but we get the line width of the comb lines coming in. We've done that and shown sub-kilohertz line width. And finally, I just want to emphasize the importance of that intimate electronic-photonic integration. John talked about this a little bit. People have been doing this with flip-chip bonding. This is Luxterra's example of a company that initially started out to put everything on a single chip, but now the flip-chip bonding. Uh, of course, flip-chip bonding's been going on for years in the infrared industry. This is TE Connect, flip-chipping Vixels and detectors and amplifiers, and uh, Oracle uh, research here with detectors and modulators. And as, uh, again, John mentioned with the AIM project, we're looking to put silicon photonics, perhaps indium phosphide chips, uh, a bunch of different kinds of chips on a common interposer in a system in a, in a package kind of technology. So what are the takeaways here? Well, the takeaways are teamwork, a focus on 3-5 materials, key achievements has put SP in a leadership position in semiconductor lasers and photonic ICs, work on blue lasers, silicon photonics in the past decade or so has really broadened and stretched that reputation. 
uh, as well as, of course, the general recognition of materials and processing, and continued research combining photonic ICs of various kinds and electronic ICs using the advanced integration techniques, such as those employed in AIM, perhaps, may hold the future for much of this field. Thank you. Light is definitely very important, will be very important, and it will affect our life in the 21st century. This is the life I would like to have. When I wake up in the morning, check my email, a touch screen, go to my car, it's connected. At school, the school teacher is using the best light wave-based technologies, and then at work, on the run, on the road, and finally, when you end up watching a very high-definition movie, all of those, the key technology here is light and light-based technology. Remember the time when the central office looked like that in the 30s and 40s and 50s? Based on fiber optic communications, that's how it looks. This is a modern data center. And some mentioned like the yottabytes or zettabytes that are involved in the data centers these days. A big percentage of the interconnects inside data centers are based on fiber optic technology. In fact, a lot of it, you can route it back to the work that happened here at UC Santa Barbara. But it was an invention of the low-loss uh, fiber. Those are the three inventors, Maurer, Keck, and Charles, in the 1771, who came up with an invention for low-loss and the process to make the fiber. It would have been useless if we didn't have this process starting from a bull and going into the four to six micron of those diameter fiber, and the way to make millions of kilometers of those fibers. In fact, the company succeeded in, we are selling millions of kilometers of those fibers every year, and that's what powered the internet. That's one key component. Those highly decorated scientists, they are credited for really launching the practical internet. But this internet needed key enabling components. And I, I guess you heard this from almost all the speakers today. Herb Cromer was the, one of the founders of those key enabling technologies. I have a more recent picture with his MBE. That's about, what, 20 years after the picture that Larry showed. But again, the credit also goes to many scientists and professors. I'm just showing the ones I interacted with the most. I'm sure I missed many, many, and I apologize for that, but those people, many of them are in the audience here, are responsible for creating those key enabling technologies in the middle of the network, at the edge of the network. So you look at this fiber optic network, and you heard from Larry and others about the lasers that came out of that. The vertical cavity surface emitting laser, sampled grating laser. The wavelength division multiplexing, the switching from rod, the parallel optics that, that Larry mentioned, in the early, in the late 80s, we wanted to change how HP interconnect computers. And we said, okay, optical communications. But lasers were very expensive. We calculated the link at one gigabit per second. It would have been much more expensive than the computer itself. Until one guy in HP, I remember that day, he came and told me, well, it's 1990 now. In 2000, the PC will be about $1,000. Your link should be $100. That means it should, make, it should cost $30. 
and you have many lasers to get the one gigabit per second, so the laser should be a dollar. He didn't know anything about laser, but he worked out the numbers for us. So we came to Santa Barbara, and we talked to John and Larry and said, we need help. It's, it's really rooted in that communications and the bi-weekly conferences that we had with you to get the parallel optics, which now sailing at 120 gigabit per second connecting computers together. That's just one example. The innovation continued. Who would have thought that you can turn a fiber on a mandrel that's two millimeter in diameter? That was a no-no. I mean, the light will leak out until three scientists in Corning were able to come with a very slick solution to this. And that's what allowed us to use those fiber inside homes. When you bend the fiber 90 degrees, it's really very critical. You want to treat a fiber like a copper line. And you, you want to staple it, you want to hammer it, you want to turn it without losing the light. And also, that's what's happening with cables that are at your fingertips now. Larry showed the active optical cables in the data centers. This one you can buy from the Apple store. This is a cable that runs at 10 gigabit per second. In fact, there is one scientist here sitting at the corning table who is part of this group. At the end of those, or at the edge, edge of those uh, cable, this one here, it has a vertical cavity surface emitting laser, it has an LED, it has um, monitoring, light monitoring, it has integrated circuits, very sophisticated to give you the 10 gigabit per second. In fact, light is touching each one of us now. You are putting your hands on a light wave technology every day when you use your mouse. The LED mouse that was developed at Hewlett Packard many years ago in the 1995-1997 and moving, actually it looks like a mouse. I didn't see it. pay attention to that. And this is uh, the laser mouse. You don't see the light because it's infrared if you turn it around, but that was invented and developed in 2003 in my lab, and between those two, more than close to two billion mice has been sold. So we are using light wave technology on a daily basis here. Now, entertainment. Remember how, I don't know how many of you have used those kinds of TVs, but I remember I gave my son a TV when he was young, and I went to his room, and he was banging on a TV. I said, Andrew, what happened? He said, it doesn't work. I said, I can see the picture. He says, there's no color. So all he knows is color TV, and those were black and white TV in CRT format, very small, not very high resolutions, but it's due to light-based technologies that now we can enjoy those huge displays, whether they are holographic, LCD, or LEDs, direct emissive, emissive displays. And I think uh, Steve Denver said that you, you will see laser TVs without this piece of glass no, 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 we need the piece of glass, uh, see. <laughs> so I want LCD to continue. Okay. Um, this is a key component for all of your LCDs that you're watching at home. We needed a very nice, large three meter by three meter piece of glass that's very thin. Imagine three meter by three meter by 300 micron thick. We melt a special kind of sand, at very high degree, and then you see two layers of molten sand coming on a triangular trough. You will see them now fusing and coming down into the sheet that's three by three by 0.4, millimeter. Nobody touches the edge, the sides of the uh, glass, so it's very pristine, very high quality. And that's the electronic grade uh, 
We, this is Gen 10. I mentioned three by three meters. That's what we use to cut into p smaller pieces to make the large screen TVs, the tablets, and, and, and the phones that uh, uh, each one of you uh, using on a daily basis. So that is another a key component that made those large LCDs possible. And we can even make it bendable now. So you wait, stay tuned for displays that will be curved and bendable. Okay, um, and that's allow us to get this 105 inch TV. This picture is uh, uh, taken with the permission from Samsung, but um, imagine a, a big display like that. I don't know how I can get that into my house, but uh, it's, it's awesome to look at something like that. Okay, health. Did light affect our health? Yes, it did. I'll show an example. Those people who have stigmatism, myopic eyes, you can go with a LASIK. You just cut a piece of the cornea, apply a laser beam, you, you work on the, on the lens, and then you put the piece back of the cornea, and, and many people have done that 15, 20 minutes. But I think it would be more than that. Watch this, it's about half a minute. A doctor in China, communicating with a doctor in the US. A guy in China has a real patient, and the expert in the US is giving some directions for a surgeon. It's based almost exclusively on light wave technology. The high definition displays, and the zettabyte network that you don't need a network that's not robust, you need a very high speed network that gives you the bits when you need it. This is a surgery across the Pacific. So you can see, here's a nurse, will send all the information from a tablet, the fiber optic network across the globe, and all the information about this patient will be transferred to the doctor in the US who is an expert on those kinds of brain surgeries. And this is a little bit far-fetched, but it might happen. You see a hologram of the patient, and you look at all the, uh, the sections. Uh, notice the light wave everywhere, light-based technologies everywhere. Then you will look at it, make his opinion, uh, and then send it back to the uh, doctor across the Pacific, as I said. So I think it will extend our life. I saw this post, uh, billboard that says, the first man to live to be 150 is alive. So we'll live to be 150. Just think about the retirement age. And light-based technologies also affected gaming. I don't know if you remember that. That's called an Atari game. It's a company called Atari. This is how people play games now, either on the iPad or with a Wii. Again, light wave technology, or light-based technology. This is an important issue here. I think this is going to be probably the most important impact when light-based technologies can revolutionize education. If the teachers can use those and now he is using Nakamura and Denver's example. They are trying to teach kids how to get white light from three different colors on a very large transparent or touch screen. So uh, in terms of lighting, this is, I caught this uh, uh, picture of the first order that Thomas Edison himself submitted to Corning in, 19, in 1880. He wanted a machine to make thousands of the light bulbs. And that machine was built. I think actually those machines are still running over so, so many, I mean, more than 100 years. 
But this is what we see now, right? That's what Steve and, and, and Suji talked about. So it took us about uh, 120 years from Edison to Nakamura and Denver. This is really, it took some time, but we are there, and maybe with laser lighting we'll be even further. Again, solar cells, this is, we heard from Al Heger, and thanks to him and his inventions, we can now have them in plastic format, bendable format. My wife wants to put solar system on top of my house. I said, no, the efficiency is still low. So help us get this 40% so I can buy those uh, solar cells. I don't know if we will ever reach that point. So if we really want to live this good life of good communications, good entertainment, good health, we, there is a price. We need very reliable networks that are running zeta by zeta is 10 to the 24, right? There is nothing after zeta. We don't have anything for the 10 to the 27. I think there's a committee trying to find that, but we are reaching that limit. And more importantly, we need a lot of water, a lot of power to power those displays and the optical network. And I took this slide from uh, David Miller at Stanford. If you look at, this is a terawatt hour per year that the humanity consume. We're at 2012, we use 20,000 terawatts per hour. If you look on the other scale, this is how much IT used PCs, data centers, and network. They are much different scale, but we are moving at a much higher rate than the rest of the industry. So we have to do something about that. And we believe, again, taking from uh, David Miller, we need really to work on novel high-density, low-power devices. This is important takeaway. Uh, and optics can give us that. There is a very nice paper that David wrote that talks about the fact that you are not charging the optical line like you do with the copper line, just applying the signal on the LEDs and getting it from the laser. But we still need, need to have those devices. So uh, my recommendation, I'm going to put it here because of time, we need novel op optical interconnect devices, new displays that you can see in bright sunlight. We need advanced solar cell, higher efficiency, so I can buy it from my wife. And we need standardization for photonic devices, and I hope AIM will, work, will, will make that possible, like the electronics industry. Need smart materials that bend on senses and, and processes. So if you want to live this good life, bear with me for one more minute. This is a one more minute video. This is the life I would like to live. This is the life I want for my children. From the time I wake up in the morning, check the traffic, and you see for yourself. Thank you very much for attending.
time for a question. Who invented it? Can you use 3D printing technology to process glass? Oh, I see. The question is, can you use 3D printing to make glass? It's very hard. There are a couple of uh, universities who have done that, uh, but not in any large scale. Uh, we are actually watching that. Steve. What do you think the most promising technology is to make that transparent display you showed? Because, as you know, LCD is not transparent. Yeah. So what are you looking at? LED, laser, OLED? What's, what do you think is the best? Good, good point. What's the best promising technology for uh, transparent display? Many people are asking us for transparent display. And we ask them, why do you want that? They really don't know. They said it's cool. So today, you can buy transparent displays. They are immersive. And some of them are based on LCD, but the backlighting, you know, one of the things that your work and, and Suji's work is, is really impacting, positively impacting our life is backlights for all of those TVs. If the LEDs are very small, but you need a few of them in the back, so they are, it is really transparent, but if you look very carefully, you can see the, the LED dots. So they are mostly based on LEDs, emissive display, and some of the most recent advances is to use LED shining into quantum dots, and you get the white light. So those are some of the things that we are working on. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's thank our speaker again. Thank you very much. And move to the second talk, uh, which will be given by uh, Professor Anja Jaic, here from UCSB. Uh, despite her young age, she's already highly decorated. Uh, just to name a few things, she uh, has the Brooker Endowed Chair for Science and Engineering here at UCSB. She also is the recipient of a Presidential Early Career Award for Science and Engineering. Uh, and she has an Air Force Office and Scientific Research, Research Young Investigator Award and an NSF Career Award. Today she will tell us some of her research in quantum sensing and imaging with photoluminescent single spins. Thank you, Pierre. Um, and I'm very delighted and, and very honored to be here today with such an illustrious group of speakers and, and also in this audience with, as I know, very good students. Um, so I've, I've been here for five years now and, and really loved it since the day I came. Not just because of the beach, but really because of the type of research going on here that you guys have had a, um, a flavor of today. Um, so I don't have quite the historical perspective <laughs> that a lot of the previous speakers have had, largely because I haven't been here for very long, but also because the field that I'm working in is actually quite young itself. Um, and so let me start off. Um, with a short discussion about diamond and the, and the defects or flaws in diamond. This might be a little bit of an unsuspecting start for somebody who's promising to talk about quantum sensing and imaging, but really it's the defects in diamond that um, form the underlying technology in our lab. So diamond um, is a wideband gap semiconductor, and it's like gallium nitride that we've heard about earlier. Um, and as a wideband gap semiconductor, it's transparent in its pristine form. And it's the defects in diamond that actually give it its color. So when light is incident upon a particular defect, that light can be absorbed and then re-emitted um, by photons of a characteristic color. 
and the color is often used to identify those particular defects. So for instance, boron, sort of the famous Hope Diamond, is responsible um, for the blue color of diamond. Nitrogen makes diamond sort of yellow, etc. <clears throat> okay, so Confucius once said <laughs> that a better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without one. Very wise. Um, and maybe I'll change the flavor a little bit and say better a diamond with a flaw than a diamond with, um, without one. Without one, sorry. <laughs> um, and so, uh, in particular, if this defect is the nitrogen vacancy defect in diamonds. So, in addition to giving diamond a sort of a pinkish, reddish color, this defect has really remarkable quantum properties that are uniquely accessible in very simple way. With a simple confocal microscope you can buy off the shelf, um, at room temperature, in ambient conditions. And uh, furthermore, it's very simple to actually see individual defects. So the pictures of the diamonds you saw earlier were really many defects that you're looking at, millions of them. But it's actually not so hard to see single ones in the lab. In fact, if you turn the lights off and really adjusted your eyes, you could see it with your own eye because they're emitting hundreds of thousands of photons per second. It's the light that's coming out of them. <clears throat> and uh, these defects have been extensively explored over the last, say, five or 10 years. Uh, for applications ranging from quantum information processing, quantum computation, to biological imaging. So in quantum information, uh, this nitrogen vacancy center forms a quantum a bit, which can be a zero or a one or any superposition of those, um, and it can be used to manipulate and store information. And because it's naturally coupled to light, it can transfer that quantum information in the form of photons quite easily. Okay, so I'm not going to talk much more about quantum computation, even though it's a very promising and... Um, interesting topic, but just in the interest of time. I'm going to focus on something else the Nitrogen Vacancy Center can do, and that is that it's a very good sensor. So it can sense magnetic fields, electric fields, temperature fields, strain fields. And because it's so small, it's an individual atomic scale defect, it can sense these fields with really nanoscale spatial resolution. And that's uh, what we are um, actively pursuing in my lab. Okay, so briefly, you already know that I'm talking about a defect. Uh, this NV is formed when one nitrogen kicks out a carbon atom and replaces that carbon atom, and then a neighboring carbon atom uh, is gone. There's a vacancy nearby. So these, these form naturally, and it's almost impossible to find really pristine diamond. Um, they can form intentionally. Most people form them via nitrogen ion implantation. Actually, we do something a little bit special here. We actually grow our own diamond and really sort of following the the theme of molecular engineering is something that we work very hard to do, is grow our diamond, introduce the nitrogen in a very controlled way, exactly where we want it. Um, okay, so uh, this little defect forms sort of an artificial atom. So like an atom, it has optical transitions. You shine, for instance, green light. Oh, green light. <laughs> shine green light on it, and it emits photons about red light, 637 nanometers. Um, furthermore, it has... Uh, an associated electronic spin, so sort of a two canonical two-level system. This um, uh, is quite important. Uh, and, um, and so this sort of artificial atom is housed in the solid-state matrix. So I'd like to say that it kind of marries all the benefits of atomic physics, right? All our atomic clocks come from atomic physics, but really marries it with condensed matter physics. These atoms are stable. They're not going anywhere. So we can, we can really interrogate one for, for years. 
um, and it's scalable and easily patternable, et cetera. Um, so going back to the, uh, this ground, this two-level system in the ground state, um, this is really what renders the NV center sensitive to fields. So there's actually these two levels, and the splitting, the energy splitting between these two levels is very sensitive to magnetic fields, and, and in the presence of a field, they move, and we can probe that. Okay, so how do we, how do we probe that? This shows um, just the uh, general idea. So this is, uh, zoom in, this is our two-level system. In fact, it's actually spin triplet. It's a three-level system, but in the absence of any magnetic field, it looks like a two-level system, and they're split by about three gigahertz, and because things collude to, uh, in the NV center to make it this way, but if the NV center is in this ground state, it actually is brighter, so it emits more photons than if it's in this state. Okay, and so that's uh, really nice, because this allows us to do optical detection of the quantum state. Um, so to probe this splitting, we can illuminate this NV center with microwaves, uh, as we sweep the frequency of the microwaves, when we cross across this 2.87 gigahertz resonance, we see a dip in the fluorescence. Again, so we're monitoring the fluorescence, the photoluminescence of this defect. Um, now, in the presence of a magnetic field, the Zeeman effect is going to actually split these two higher triplet levels, the plus one and minus one states, which have different angular momenta. They get split by a Zeeman splitting, and again, we can do this optically detected magnetic resonance spectroscopy to spectroscopically probe the location of these two levels. And the splitting between these two peaks depends linearly on the magnetic field. So basically we just probe the splitting and that tells us what the magnetic field is. Um, now, of course, the question is what's the sensitivity of the sensor? How small of a field can we detect? Um, that's going to depend on how uh, narrow these peaks are. And that's where the uh, quantum properties of the NV center, the fact that it has very long quantum coherence times comes in. So the width of these is proportional to, it gets narrower as your quantum coherence time gets longer. And that's something we work really hard in our lab and is to understand what fundamentally limits quantum coherence and how can we improve it to make this sensor a better sensor. Okay, so <clears throat> why do we care about magnetic sensors to begin with, you might be asking. <laughs> um, and so, for instance, um, the whole field of uh, MRI, or the whole idea of magnetic resonance imaging, is based on detecting the magnetic field due to nuclear spins, proton spins, um, in, you know, in your brain, if that's what happens to be being imaged, or in whatever other part of your body. Um, and so this is obviously a very well-established and, and sort of prevalent and useful technique. State-of-the-art magnetic resonance imaging uh, needs about 10 to the 12th to 10 to the 18th nuclear spins to get a sig uh, enough signal in order to, 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 make a, um, to, to, estimate the, uh, to estimate the signal. So it's about this many nuclear spins per voxel, 3D pixel. Um, and so that means that the best conventional MRI microscopy is limited to about a resolution of approximately three microns. Okay, so the question is, could we use the NV center to really push that down to the nanoscale and even below, maybe to the angstrom scale, to actually do magnetic resonance imaging of the individual nuclear spins in a proton to, in a protein, sorry, um, to image the structure of a protein. This is a huge uh, field, structural imaging and um, uh, biology, because, you know, the structure of proteins is so responsible for their function, and, uh, and this is a difficult task. So, um, so the point is, it should 
no, we're not there yet. It should be possible, but it's hard. One really has to work on the quantum coherence times um, and techniques of, of imaging. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised that within about five or ten years, uh, actually, NV centers could get there. Uh, another sort of far out um, perspective is using NV centers to perform neuronal to image neural activity. So there's a big push to understand the connectivity of neurons and, and, and how information is transferred in the brain. So one uh, idea that we, as well as others, are working towards is to take uh, neurons, and, and one can actually form, make little diamond nanocrystals, maybe 5, 10 nanometers in size, that have these little defects inside of them, um, and sort of decorate uh, it's a, an organism with uh, these little nanocrystals which have these sensing, these fluorescent sensors inside of them and actually probe um, the magnetic field that's associated with currents flowing down these neurons as action potentials fire. So the question is, can we do that? Right now, nobody can do that. There's no technology that can do that in a non-invasive way with sort of the, res the requisite uh, spatial temporal resolution. Again, it should be possible with NV centers, but um, there's, uh, it hasn't been demonstrated yet. But that's where we're trying to get to. Um, or simultaneously monitoring signal propagation over a whole network or even monitoring individual ion channels. Okay, so uh, this proposed magnetic sensing with photoluminescent single spins has only been proposed in, say, the last maybe eight years. Um, and there's been a remarkable amount of progress uh, in those eight years. And just to highlight a few um, of the results, including some, some of ours, but uh, NV centers have been used to detect the magnetic resonance signal of a volume of proton spins, a five nanometer cubed volume of spins. So that's a huge improvement over this current three micron um, state-of-the-art uh, MRI resolution. So uh, this was done with NV centers inside of a bulk diamond right below the surface, and and just detecting, in fact, it was just oil put on the surface, but detecting the proton signal from that small volume of oil. Um, okay, so that's detection, but you know, one would like to do imaging, so there's been some recent efforts uh, from our lab as well, um, where one used an NV center uh, to detect, uh, in this case, a 10 nanometer cubed volume of electron spins. These are actually molecular spin labels that are often used to label proteins for, for protein structure determination, and also uh, recent demonstration of uh, single electron spin detection. So um, uh, imaging, actually, a single electron spin. This other single electron spin was actually another NV center, so maybe not so much of a, a biological environment, but still, uh, is magnetic imaging of individual electron spins has been demonstrated. So the field has really moved quickly. So now I just wanted to touch a little bit more on uh, just the last bit specifically on what we have developed and are developing in our lab and so some of the goals uh, that we have. Um, so the, the platform that we have built in our lab is, is pretty simple. One uses sort of atomic force microscopy, scanning probe microscopy, the basics of that to form uh, a diamond cantilever with an NV center, with a single magnetic sensor at the very apex, apex of the tip, and controllably scan it over some sample. This is a very versatile tool. It could be any sample. Um, and image the local magnetic field from, from the, ideally the nuclear spins, for instance. 
So this could be used for, for protein structure determination. This just shows a spin-labeled protein where one could maybe try to detect instead of nuclear spins, which would be harder, maybe electron spin labels that are labeling a protein. Um, and actually, I'm a condensed matter physicist. Um, I'm a little new to the, the biology field, so something that we're um, very interested in and have started working on is, is probing nanoscale magnetism in condensed matter systems, particularly ones that are of, of current technological interest and, and that we really excel at here in UCSB. So this just shows you uh, a TEM picture of, of a material grown by Suzanne Stemmer here at UCSB. Um, uh, complex oxide heterostructure, these could make potentially very fast switches, and there's also a lot of interesting physics uh, going on inside of them. This is another example of a potentially technologically impactful material. Um, these are called skirmions. These are little magnetic vortices that could potentially be used as very low-power consumption magnetic information storage, but they're tiny, and there's really not good techniques to manipulate them and to understand what's happening, and they're really not very well understood. So this is um, things that are actually in, in action in our lab right now. So let me just show you that we've, uh, we have built this tool. Um, we have scanned our little scanning NV center. In this case, we started to benchmark our system a magnetic hard drive, which is pretty large magnetic fields, but still, it's small. So we've imaged the bits on a hard drive. You can see individual bits about 100 nanometers by 250 nanometers. Uh, shown here, and this was actually done at low temperature um, because we have a low temperature system because we're interested in studying a lot of condensed matter phenomena that occur at low temperatures. Um, and so uh, looking at condensed matter phenomena at low temperatures, this just shows that our, we've used our scanning probe to image actually vortices in a high temperature superconductor, in this case a pnictide superconductor. Um, these are generally very difficult measurements to do, um, and so we're pretty excited about these uh, recent measurements, just showing that our tool really is compatible with condensed matter systems. We really can get, we've shown six nanometer spatial resolution, um, and we're really moving towards this sort of single nuclear spin sensitivity. So I hope I've convinced you about the promise um, of ND centers in, in both biological and condensed matter fields. Should mention that there's, you know, there is an active search for other sort of defect centers and other types of materials or in diamond that could um, sort of afford uh, similar sensing capabilities. Right now, the NV Center is the one that has been that we're focusing on because it's the most promising. But thank you to my students for doing really all the work and, and the funding, and, and especially to, to UCSB. So thank you very much. A couple of questions. Same question I gave to Alan in the first session. Looking out three to five years, what is the single most formidable hurdle that your project and research faces? Uh, of, of this sort of field? Yeah, so um, it's something I maybe alluded to a little bit. So uh, the sensitivity of these ENV centers, how small of a field they can detect, really depends on the quantum coherent nature. And quantum coherence is very delicate. So you know, any interaction with the environment uh, hurts you. And, and I mean, it's, it's great that we're starting in diamond, first of all. I mean, the, the diamond environment, just because it's you know, such a strong material, it has you know, very few phonons occupied at room temperature, these sorts of things help us to begin with. However, to get the good spatial resolution, you also have to bring these defects right near the surface, because otherwise 
you're not going to get good spatial resolution. So when you're near the surface, you don't just have diamond around you, you have junk on the surface. And that's, that's been something that the community has been struggling with. I mean, it's, we can overcome it and still get these results, but that sort of, it's, it's a very materials-based issue um, and some degree of chemistry, too, understanding how to passivate the surface and, and, and how to uh, preserve the quantum coherence of those NV centers. I think that's going to be necessary in order to get to really nuclear spin imaging. So. Okay. It seems, oh, I'm sorry. The, um, the imaging that you're talking about, would this be useful, do you think, in the nanoscale realm of probing inside of a virus and determining if that virus was essentially alive or not? If it's, uh, how would you know if a virus is alive or not? <laughs> uh, again, I'm not a biologist, but I mean, I know there's, uh, I mean, when we try to determine if our neurons are alive, we give some sort of stains to them and, and, and then we look at them optically. But, but I, okay, so but maybe to answer the, the question of can you probe inside a virus, yes, I think that the answer is yes. I mean, the idea is that you can take these diamond nanocrystals, which are, and I didn't mention this, but diamond is totally biocompatible. So that's a big, that's actually why we can even consider doing this in vivo. And people have put diamond nanocrystals into cells and monitored the local fields inside cells. Um, so the biocompatibility is there. It's optically detectable, so you can already piggyback on all the sort of optical recording that is commonly done in, in biological systems. Um, and so I guess if there's a magnetic signal, actually they're also electric field sensitive and temperature sensitive. So I could imagine that temperature sensitivity could be one way to detect if a virus is alive or not. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely maybe even easier than some of the, <laughs> the long-term goals that I presented here. Hey, let's thank our speaker again. <laughs>very much, Pierre, and thanks. It's an honor for me to be here and uh, part of the warm-up act for Steve, too. 
I'd like to tell you about tunable biophotonics. And from the very origin of life, living systems have interacted with light and as a result have evolved some very sophisticated systems for processing light. The eye, even the human eye, is essentially a single photon sensitive imager. And um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about a different system in some invertebrate animals. The octopus and uh, squids and their cousins are really masters of what we call tunable biophotonics, the ability to change uh, the color of uh, light that is absorbed or reflected uh, from their skins. And uh, just a second after my friend uh, uh, Roger Hanlon uh, approached this animal underwater, as you can see it's holding onto a rock, uh, it changed its appearance to look like this. And uh, you can see it's still there. The eye is, is there. Um, and it's changed uh, the color, reflectance, and texture in different layers of the skin. And, of course, molecular mechanisms ultimately activated by neuronal signals emanating from the brain in response to the external signal of the approaching threat um, have uh, governed these processes. There are actually two layers of skin that are involved in the uh, dynamic or tunable biophotonics. The outer layer uh, consists of cells that many of you may have heard of already called chromatophores that essentially contain granules of pigment. And these cells are expanded or contracted by minuscule fibers of muscle that expand or contract them uh, so that they appear more apparent or, or less so. They have a limited uh, chromatic palette, though, of just reds, browns, or yellows. It's underneath those cells, that layer, however, that there's another layer of cells that are iridescent. They don't have pigment, but instead they dynamically tune their reflectance of the incident light. Each one of these bright spots, tiny spots, is a living cell. And as you can see, this is a layer of uh, the inner layer of skin in the squid that we've peeled to expose these. And as you can see, they can be tuned to reflect any color of the visible uh, rainbow. And these animals use their uh, dynamic tuning uh, not only for camouflage, as you saw in the first slide, but also as, uh, for underwater communication and signaling. For example, uh, in this Indo-Pacific cuttlefish, uh, this is a signal saying, uh, stay away, I'm, I'm a tough guy, whereas this attractive pattern is an invitation to mating. So they're signaling as well as... Uh, uh, camouflage. Um, we, we found that it's the diffusion of a neurotransmitter small molecular signal from the termini of nerve cells that emanate from the brain and end in patches of skin that activate uh, this process in the living cells. As you can see here, if we drop a droplet of the neurotransmitter normally released from these cells on the patch of skin, uh, as you saw, it activates the bright reflectance of incident light and progressively changes their color. Uh, each one of these objects is a living cell and the dark lacunae in the center uh, are the, the positions of the nuclei. 
The colors start at red and progressively tune through uh, orange, yellow, green, and blue. The animal can pick any color, and the process is reversible and repeatable. Electron microscopy reveals the fine structure of these uh, cells. Uh, you can see in cross-section that they contain microlaminae, membrane-bound layers that constitute a Bragg reflector. It's artificially colored here in, this, in these slides because uh, the uh, proteins have been stained dark uh, for our visualization. Normally, these are transparent. Uh, but here, uh, again, the position of the nucleus in high resolution, you can see the membrane. Um, and we, using a microspectrophotometer that we constructed, we have been able to measure the refractive indices in the living tissue. And the uh, dense protein-filled lamellae uh, are filled with a unique family of proteins called reflectins. Uh, and we'd love to know the three-dimensional structure of those proteins. We measure the internal refractive index of these lamellae at about 1.48, whereas the intervening extracellular spaces are, have a refractive index of only 1.34. That small difference is sufficient with modulation of the, uh, the spacing and a number of these uh, lamellae to uh, produce the bright reflectance that you saw. It's the metastability of these reflectant proteins that fill those lamellae that actually provide the photonic switch. As I mentioned, these proteins are transparent. They're not pigmented. They tunably control the assembly of these photonic nanostructures, the, the uh, Bragg lamellae. Using DNA cloning and sequencing, we've been able to determine the sequences of the proteins that are encoded by the DNA and uh, discover their unusual amino acid sequences. These are about 300 amino acids long, so that's a few nanometers in length. Um, they contain, as illustrated here, uh, canonical repeated blocks of complex sequence that I'll discuss uh, a few minutes later uh, with... Uh, the, positively charged uh, cationic linkers uh, uh, linking these, these canonical blocks. The key discovery that we made is that in response to the neurotransmitter, inside the cells that contain these structures, a signal transduction cascade of enzymatic activities amplifies the neuronal neurotransmitter signal to end in a activating an enzyme that catalyzes the addition of phosphate groups that I've crudely illustrated here to specific positions in these proteins. Because they're positively charged, and I'll show you this in a moment, at neutral pH, addition of one or two of these phosphates, each carrying two negative charges themselves, is sufficient to just about neutralize the positive charge, overcoming Coulombic repulsion that normally keeps these proteins apart. This is, in fact, the photonic switch. A diagram of the simple physics that controlled the uh, biophotonic, biophotonic tuning uh, illustrated here uh, the reflectant proteins within the membrane-bound lamella of the Bragg reflector in their Coulombic repulsion because they're positively charged. The phosphorylation overcomes that repulsion, allowing them to condense through neutralization of the charges. This condensation 
And assembly essentially masks the surface charges that bristle from most biological macromolecules. Now, normally, a charged biological molecule like proteins will be neutralized by a cloud of small, oppositely charged counterions. When those charges are masked by occlusion through net Brownian movement, there's exclusion of the negatively charged ions that were neutralizing the reflectance. So they go migrate essentially uh, uh, across the uh, Bragg lamellar membrane. This triggers, that's like creating high salt outside the membrane, higher osmotic pressure. And so in result, as a result, water is drawn by a process called Gibbs-Donnan re-equilibration across the membrane. Essentially, it's like making an olive. You soak it in brine. But the higher salt outside the membrane causes the water to be sucked out uh, and and the lamellae shrink. Now, that's the key because simultaneously, this dehydration shrinks the lamellae increasing the refractive index contrast between the inside and the outside, and thus creating reflective interfaces where before they were were transparent and and non-reflective. So it activates reflectance, and by progressively changing the dimensions, it's tuning the wavelength at which constructive interference occurs, tuning the color of the reflected light. This illustrates how this process occurs. And this first part is pretty standard for the way in which neurotransmitters work in many of our cells uh, controlled by neurons or hormones, in which the neurotransmitter binds to a cell surface receptor um, to activate first one enzyme, which activates the cleavage of a molecule in the membrane uh, to activate another enzyme, etc., until finally, the final enzyme in this cascade is activated to add the phosphate groups at specific points in the reflect, to the reflectant proteins. Notice that I've shown you here that results of our focused ion beam uh, uh, milling to look at the fine structure of these cells and electron microscopy revealed to our surprise that these lamellae aren't really like a stack of frisbees inside the cell, but rather formed by the repeated uh, periodic invaginations of the cell membrane, making folds like an accordion. It's these that are tunable. And in fact, using a variety of physiological and molecular probes, we've confirmed multiple of the, most of these steps, as indicated by the arrows, and most recently using uh, D2O heavy water as a label, we've confirmed the uh, uh, efflux and reuptake, reversible reuptake of the water. Uh, now, uh, this shows that process in uh, higher resolution uh, from the off state to the on state activated by the neurotransmitter, and the resulting uh, ink activation of light reflectance uh, progressively with time and the shift in wavelength uh, from red to yellow to, to blue. Notice the densification of those reflectance. We found a similar, uh, the same mechanism, but in different cells that aren't tunably colored, but rather they go bright white. 
and the ultrastructure um, is, uh, is, is a bit different. Instead of being organized in lamellae within these cells, uh, the reflectins are contained within intracellular uh, spherical or discoidal vesicles, which upon activation with the neurotransmitter uh, show uh, assembly, condensation of the reflectins, and the dehydration makes these vesicles uh, pycnotic or dense. The result is an activation of reflectance, but because of the different structure, rather than lamellae, uh, more like the granules of white paint, uh, titanium dioxide and white paint, these reflect bright white. Uh, and so it's the same physical process, but the photophysics is different. Uh, and so um, uh, while this is uh, reflectance by Bragg reflection, uh, this is in fact me scattering, and we've characterized both of these. The three-step molecular mechanism that we've discovered is really phenomenal. Um, we calculate the, the charges on these proteins uh, as shown here as a function of I increasing the pH, that is, uh, let's say, reducing the number of free protons in the solution. And so we can neutralize the protein going from an excess of 38 positive excess charges on the protein surface uh, all the way to here to uh, just a, a few, uh, plus two or three or uh, in this case, five. So uh, in the physiological range in, of pH indicated by the light blue, uh, you can see that this is a very, very sensitive and rapid uh, decrease in a positive charge. It's a hair trigger in which, with which only one or two phosphates that are added are sufficient to overcome that Coulombic repulsion. Um, we've used here, because this is in vitro working with the recombinant proteins from, uh, that we produce from the cloned recombinant DNA um, as an in vitro surrogate for the phosphorylation that occurs in vitro. We're using this change in titration by pH as a convenient uh, experimental means of triggering this process. And what we see using either fluorimetry, which I'll show you in a second, or, or uh, wide-angle X-ray scattering, uh, going from the uncondensed state to the condensed state which is actually what's monitored here, um, we, we see that there is a change in acquisition of secondary structure. The protein is initially unstructured, but it begins to acquire previously cryptic structure. And hidden in that pre unstructured first uh, initial state, but then acquired through its folding, is the formation of several helical domains. It turns out those mysterious, canonical, repeated domains um, can acquire a heli helical conformation in which all of the side chains of the amino acids on one face of the helix, as shown in yellow, are hydrophobic. They're fatty, water-fleeing. And so they act like molecular Velcro to bind to others being excluded from the salty water environment of the cytoplasm. They're strongly hydrophobic, behaving like a molecular Velcro to drive assembly. So that's the trick or the key to this biophotonic switch. It's a really clever, hidden, uh, or fail-safe switch. We can duplicate this completely in vitro um, uh, using the cloned recombinant uh, proteins that we purify um, and uh, here triggering their assembly by neutralizing the proteins with high pH, 
um, we see that they increase in uh, their assembly from 5 nanometers, measured with dynamic light scattering, up to about 50 or 55 nanometers. And then if we restore the positive charge, so they drive them back apart and into Coulombic repulsion uh, with uh, low pH, high pH, low, uh, repeatable over multiple cycles and multiple days. It corresponds very well, we think, with the observations that we made in, vi in vivo in the living cells. And notice even that the size that we observe in the starting seems to be uh, identical to that of the reflectance in their initial state. As I mentioned, fluorimetry and wide-angle X-ray scattering show that uh, there, the condensation, uh, as it, it begins... Uh, to drive the proteins together uh, uh, by overcoming the Coulombic repulsion actually drives the acquisition of structure and uh, the TEMs confirm that uh, hierarchical assembly. We're using now genetic analysis and recombination to identify uh, and even graph structural determinants of the tunability I won't go through the details, but what we're interested in is understanding what the determinants on the structure are that are responsible for this emergence of the cryptic uh, key for assembly and the cyclability. Are we using several techniques of modern uh, molecular genetics to do this, um, selecting the combinatorial mutants with altered fluorescence as a marker for the emergence and altered light scattering as a marker for the assembly. And finally, once we identify the minimal domain that's required for tunability, we aim to graft this onto other proteins to see if we can export that property. In conclusion, it's the program metastability that's the key design principle of tunably emergent structure and assembly are encoded in the linear sequence of these proteins. The significance and prospects, we believe, are that a new path to polymer-encoded tunable properties has been found. People ask about the applications of tunable reconfigurability that we found. You know, can you make an invisibility cloak? Well, uh, we have not uh, proceeded in that direction. Uh, or, actually, I haven't seen one of the students for a couple of days. It's possible. But we're more interested in sense and respond systems that can be uh, tailored this way and in the energy applications. And finally, I thank you for your interest and the students and uh, the agencies that provided our support. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.